They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Nathan, I want to start things off here with a very important, interesting, and revealing question. Well, the answer will be revealing. What uh, puppet from Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared do you think that you are most like? (laughs) What, What kind of movie question is this? It's like those BuzzFeed articles where they're like, Tell us which side of your body you sleep on, and we'll tell you when, what year you're going to die or something. Wow. Um, I don't know. I feel like probably Red Guy, although I'm not as morose as he is, I would say. But I don't know. Yellow Guy is like a chi- is supposed to be like a child or something, so I don't really feel much connection to him. And I don't know if Duck Guy really has any distinguishing qualities besides being kind of annoying in terms of his voice. So probably Red Guy, I guess. I feel like you're more of a Duck Guy because I I watched the TV show. Um, if you don't know, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared is like a web series on YouTube and it got really big and then they adapted it into a TV show that's only had one season and I think is only going to have one season. But uh, it's like a surrealist horror children's show parody thing. It's kind of funny. But yeah, the three main characters are Red Guy, Duck Guy, and Yellow Guy. And Red Guy is uh, fairly sarcastic and reserved. Um, but Duck Guy, he's he does have an annoying voice. And he also, the way that he talks to people, especially in the TV show speaks to a level of a lot of pent-up hostility and aggression, and I feel like that's more your thing. (laughs) Pent-up aggression and hostility? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Wow, thanks. Thanks, Elliot. What a great opening banter section. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, Nathan... As he said before we were we started recording, has still not watched any more of The Mandalorian. I mean, it was his idea to take up the slack that I left after finishing The Last of Us, but apparently he just can't be bothered to actually watch the show. Once again, I could be bothered. I just do not have a method to watch it currently. I'm going to watch it this weekend while I'm at home, and then I shall obtain the information I need to get logged in up here from my sister next week. So next week I'll be able to give my thoughts on all the rest of the season and then it'll be useless. We'll be out of a banter topic once again. We'll be back to BuzzFeed questions. All right. 
Well, yeah, I want to jump into it. I want to get get into this episode. I'm really excited about this. I got to choose the movie, and like I promised at the end of last week, I chose. I mean, it's not the weirdest movie I could have chosen, but I chose a movie that I'm assuming a lot of people haven't seen, just because it didn't really have a huge impact when it came out. Of course, I'm talking about 2015's The End of the Tour, adapted from the book by David Lipsky. Of course, you end up becoming yourself. And just to give a kind of brief plot rundown, if you haven't seen it, don't want to watch it, it is about the aforementioned David Lipsky spending uh, one week or like five days, four days, some amount of time with the author David Foster Wallace on the last couple days of his book tour for Infinite Jest, which was a widely acclaimed book. It's considered his masterpiece now. It's considered one of the defining books of the turn of the century as well. And so the book that David Lipsky wrote is basically just transcriptions of their conversations that they had on these couple of days that they spent together. And then the movie is a dramatization of those same conversations with Jason Siegel playing David Foster Wallace and Jesse Eisenberg playing David Lipsky. And that's, I mean, that's pretty much the entire plot of the film. I've seen this. If you listen to our recap episode for the end of the year last year, this was, I think, one of my five favorite movies if it wasn't, that was an oversight. It should have been. So I really wanted to rewatch this. I'm currently reading another David Foster Wallace book. And so I wanted to rewatch the movie and see if it still held up. Elliot, let's start with you. You haven't seen this. Uh, what were your expectations going in? And how, what are your initial thoughts on the film? You always pose these questions both in form and delivery, like a sports newscaster interviewing a player after the big game. That's because I'm the host. You're the co-host slash interviewee. Slash perpetual guest. Yes, perpetual guest. Host Nathan, perpetual guest, Elliot. Right. Well, first of all, I think you've left out some important context here, that being that you have read Infinite Jest um, and that you can fit, yes. consider yourself in general to be very much buying what the old DFW was selling. Um, DFW having tragically committed suicide, I think, in like 2006? 2007, I want to say. Yeah. So, yeah, so Nathan is, Nathan, basically I'm saying Nathan is a lot closer to the story than I am because I have not read Infinite Jest and good lord, I'm never going to. Um, I have only, I read a David Foster Wallace essay for class one time and then I read another one just sort of because it was recommended to me. I really liked his writing style in both of them. Like, he has a very strong grasp and command of the English language, although he's definitely vulnerable to overwriting and 
he, he in the essays that I read, he meandered more than a few times, um, which I didn't really appreciate. But so, but you know, I haven't read that much of DFW, so my opinion is kind of limited in scope. Anyway, uh, so there's your context for the kind of disposition that we both bring into this movie. I was expecting nothing because I barely knew what this movie was about and I know nothing about DFW or the guy who uh Jesse David Lipsky DL yeah I guess I was just kind of expecting your typical autobiography did you then ask me what I thought coming out of it yeah <laughs> yeah um okay I guess to give you like a brief overview uh I liked it I liked it a good deal I thought that David Foster Wallace and the portrait that it painted of him was incredibly compelling. I thought that <laughs> as someone who knows a bit about the kinds of mental health struggles that he clearly was going through, I thought that it was all very realistic and very, it was very sad, you know, knowing what eventually would happen to him seeing the extent to which he was so afraid of himself. Uh, I That was the thing that really felt like it defined his character by the time the movie was over, was that he was just really scared of himself, of the things that he wanted and the way that he was and the way that he, the many, many ways that he didn't want to be. He was just, to me, it seemed like he was just deeply suspicious of his own motivations and his own authenticity or lack thereof i also thought that the character quote-unquote character of david lipsky played really well off of him and was a really good compliment to him compliment not compliment that he you know he didn't understand why dfw was so sad when it seemed to him from the outside that he he was living the life that he, David Lipsky, always wanted. And I thought that his arc over the course of the film was well done. The problem, I think, is that this core dynamic is not quite as great as the sum of its parts. Because I felt like, individually, both characters were really strong, but their relationship, I felt, was very underdeveloped. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I guess I, I don't really need to do a ton of my initial thoughts. I loved this movie the first time I saw it last year. I thought it held up even more watching it this time. I felt like I saw more of sort of the nuances of both Lipsky and Foster Wallace and what they brought to this sort of relationship or these conversations that they had. So, yeah, I really liked it. I guess to jump in on the thing that you already sort of stated, that you felt their relationship was underdeveloped, we can start there and talk about the relationship between the two characters. It's the be the bedrock of the film. Most of the movie is just them talking to each other outside of kind of the framing device and some brief scenes before that. And... 
I don't know. I guess I don't feel like it's underdeveloped. And I guess the reason is both of them are trying to be liked by the other person for different reasons. Like Lipsky, like you already kind of said, wants what David Foster Wallace has. Like he wants to be a famous writer with an acclaimed book that everyone's praising. And so he wants to be close to him because he thinks in some way that he can get right some of his like genius and he'll be able to get some insight that he'll be able to use to write some magnum opus or something. And David Foster Wallace just genuinely wants a friend because he's incredibly lonely. And so I think I don't really see it as underdeveloped as much as it's both of them are really desperately trying to be friends for these brief days that they're together. Yeah, I just felt like this is hard to articulate because as is so often the case, I don't fully understand the way I feel myself, but to me, it sort of seemed like they were moving along parallel lines that never really intersected. That they didn't really, that they had a lot of really interesting conversations, but they never really had conversations in the way that friends or even people who want to be friends have conversations. It never really felt like they were interacting, if that makes any sense. Because they would just... For most of the movie, they would just sort of bounce off of each other with relative ease. And so by the time they introduced tension into the relationship, I was like, okay, where is this coming from? Why is this... Is his quote-unquote flirtation with DFW's old flame from grad school, why is this so... Why is it so hard for them to get around it? And I feel like I didn't understand that because I didn't really have a good sense of who they were as a pair. I had a good sense of both of them as people, Mm. but I didn't really have a good sense of them as a pair, as, you know, two friends. So by the same token, when the issue was resolved and they were back to being all buddy-buddy, I was like, why did this happen? Why are they suddenly friends again because they have a fight about whether or not DFW was a heroin addict and then DFW gives the big monologue to um, David Lipsky late at night and then the next morning all's well and yeah that just that just it just seemed very unearned to me the tension didn't really feel unearned and it felt like it was introduced because you know, it's a movie. They have there has to be a sad part before the happy ending, and so yeah. Then by extension, the happy ending felt a little bit unearned because the tension never really made sense in the first place. I guess. I mean, it's. Ba- I haven't read the book. I'm assuming they didn't change huge swaths of it, so I'm assuming that is essentially what happens so it's less them trying to conform to some sort of filmic structure and more just the facts of what happened that they had a fight and then they kind of made up i think i would take issue with your calling the ending to this movie a happy ending i wasn't particularly overjoyed by the time the film ended personally 
But I guess to not get bogged down on this and to move towards talking about good things so we can be happy together instead of you making up nonsense. <laughs> Let's talk about the two characters individually, Foster Wallace and Lipsky. I think one of the best parts of this movie is Jason Siegel absolutely delivering a fantastic performance as David Foster Wallace. I've watched some interviews with him as well as like a graduation commencement sort of speech. And I think he really nails not just the look, which is a very particular look that he had long hair and the bandana and stuff, but also just the nervous ticks of him and the way that he spoke. He spoke with a very particular rhythm that I think Jason Siegel really nails. And I don't think this movie works if Jason Siegel isn't as good as he is in what's essentially the most important role in my mind. So what did you think of Lipsky and Foster Wallace, but more specifically Foster Wallace, since that's what I just talked about? Well, first of all, the, the way I want to put the whole relationship thing, because I did think of something while I was not listening to what you were saying, that... To me, it feels, <laughs> I think I, I was listening to me. I would summarize my thoughts on their relationship as it never really felt to me like they got past an interviewer interviewee relationship. So when the movie was trying to draw some sort of conflict or deeper meaning out of a deeper relationship, I didn't really feel that because I didn't feel like the deeper relationship was there. Mm. Now that's not, and this will be reflected in my rating, that's not a movie-killing problem because the individual characters are so strong as characters. And yeah, I, I thought that David Foster Wallace, I mean, he's he was just so unrelentingly raw and honest that even when he was saying like I don't want to talk about x it didn't really feel like he was hiding something more like he was just moving around something there was not a single bit of disingenuousness to him as a character and you know presumably as a person yeah like I said already I have a big soft spot for movies that portray mental health struggles with a lot of accuracy and a lot of sympathy. And I feel like, excuse me, this movie absolutely had both of those in droves because, yeah, he's just so, <laughs> he's just so paralyzed by the things that he feels and the things that he wants. And most of all, you know, I, I'll come back to, he was just so suspicious of himself. Like he was constantly saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want it. I don't want people to think that I'm doing this because I don't want this. I think at one point he says, I am very afraid of being a certain way. And I think that that sums up his character in this movie pretty much perfectly that he's trying to live out the reality of the message that his book is purportedly saying. Obviously, since I didn't read it, I wouldn't know it. But a message about seeking connection and authenticity in 
it's you know it's similar to t- 15 million merits in that he feels and it's similar to fight club in that he feels that corporatization and mass media and social media and all that kind of stuff have just made people very lonely and he is very very lonely yeah and he wants to believe everything that he believes but it seems like he just is too suspicious of himself and too afraid of his own human weaknesses to ever fully believe what he believes. Yeah, I I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head. What I always say is David Foster Wallace was uh, smart enough to figure out what was wrong with him to a very, very high degree of closeness to what his true issue was, but he was never smart enough to be able to get out of just continually diagnosing the problem, which I think is something that can happen to a lot of people. Certainly something that can happen to me. (laughs) I'm just, you know, it's tragic, but I think it is kind of very evident in the movie, right? That he's able to see all of these different things. And if you read his books, he's very honest and real with all of these things that he writes about. But I don't think any of his books really ever, and he says it too in the movie, that Infinite Jest doesn't really prescribe anything for this, right? It describes to a high level of detail what living in modern society feels like, but it doesn't really give like, oh, do this thing which I think the movie kind of does in terms of portraying, right, the connection that Lipsky and Foster Wallace have and saying, you know, you see Lipsky there at the end say that the conversation meant so much to him and really connected to him on a deeper level than just like he interviewed someone. I also saw somewhere that apparently he didn't even end up like writing in the interview, like an article never came out from this thing. So the book is the only thing that kind of exists as a record of what happened. But I guess to kind of pivot then, since to talk about the second character the movie is kind of about, uh, Lipsky, I find this fascinating. And again, I haven't read the book, but Lipsky really comes off like a bit of a tool and a bit of a not dumb, but just naive. I think in the movie that there's a lot of scenes where he's like baffled that David, that Foster Wallace feels a certain way. And he's like, but you're famous. Like, why would you feel that? Like, why would you be sad? You're rich or, you know, you're famous or you're so critically adored. And I think it's fascinating that a movie would be able to have such a critical eye towards ostensibly right? The person who wrote the book, Lipsky, in that, in this sense. And I think Jesse Eisenberg does a really good job. He's obviously overshadowed by how much I love Jason Siegel in this role, but I think Lipsky is a very interesting foil to Foster Wallace in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, I would call him sheltered, is how I would describe him. Mm. That he just, he has lived a certain way all his life, and so... 
other ways of living or ways of thinking just kind of don't really register as possibilities to him. Also, to the point about him not having written, <coughs> excuse me, this interview, I, I really don't mean to keep on coming back to the relationship problem, but you, you keep on inadvertently <laughs> sparking further ways for me to flesh it out. I, I don't know why they didn't mention that, because that, se- that seems like a really good indicate way to indicate how the relationship had moved beyond interviewer and interviewee because throughout the movie I kept on waiting for the moment when he would turn off the recorder stop asking pointed reportery questions and just start having a conversation like a normal person but I never feel like I never felt like they really got there so there's even more reason to reason to say that this movie sucks um no <laughs> no I agree I think that he's definitely uh, sheltered, which I've already said. And, uh, yeah, he represents a kind of, a sort of version of DFW that, uh, a former version of him, uh, you know, cause David Foster Wallace, dude, this is, this has nothing to do with anything, but if I had a nickel for every time I say, you know, on this program, I think I would be a very wealthy man. Um, anyway, that doesn't matter. David Foster Wallace was talking about feeling like his life, his first suicide attempt, feeling like his life was over because he just wasn't very successful. And then he talked about the time where he met another author who he had won an award with when the author was coming in to, I didn't even, I wasn't a hundred percent sure what they were talking about, like a sauna or something where David Foster Wallace was working. So to me, it seemed like David Lipsky was in many ways like David Foster Wallace before he became David Foster Wallace. That he was, mm-hmm. all he could see of David Foster Wallace was the fame and the praise and the celebrity. And David Foster Wallace, I mean, I don't think that David Lipsky, obviously David Lipsky was not doing this intentionally, but I feel like that probably would have made David Foster Wallace feel even more lonely, that he couldn't be seen as anything other than David Foster Wallace, the author of Infinite Jest. And yeah, I really liked the way that he evolved as a character from, I don't think he ever really understood David Foster Wallace insofar as anyone could understand anyone. But yeah, I think you see that most, that fundamental misunderstanding of the kind of person that he was dealing with. And I'm not saying this because I pretend like, oh, well, obviously I know what kind of person David Foster Wallace was. But when when he accused him of being fake, of his... Concern for authenticity being a show. And I feel like that was a product of his sheltered life, of his not being able to realize that celebrity was not as fulfilling as maybe he wanted it to be. Because I do feel like he wanted David, and doesn't, didn't, there was, I feel like, as I'm thinking about it, there was a point where, yes, at the very end, I think, when he was reading from his book, he was saying that 
he that people when they hear about brilliant people they don't want them to be people they want them to be brilliant geniuses and i think that that's that absolutely nails him as a character that he wanted david foster wallace to be this kind of untouchable mysterious tortured genius and he was certainly tortured i don't know if he was a genius or not having not read enough of his work but he was definitely tortured and clearly talented enough to seize the attention of a great portion of the literary world. And the idea that the person who had done this could still be so miserable, I feel like that didn't really register with him. And also, and I don't want to get too deep into like psychoanal psychoanalysis here, but also may have scared him a little bit. Because if this is what he's working towards, the fame and the celebrity and the notoriety, and that hasn't fixed DFW, then obviously it's not going to fix David Lipsky. Yeah, well, and I think to kind of tie this to, because I strongly agree with everything you've said, especially that he wanted he wanted to go and find some like crazy, super insane story. And what he got was three days and he goes to like a cheesy action movie with him and he goes to McDonald's. Like I love how mundane everything that David Foster Wallace does with Lipsky is that Lipsky is hoping to have some huge revelatory sort of experience and he does, but it's not in the way he was expecting. And yeah, I just I just think it's so fat it's a fascinating movie because of both of the main characters bring all of this stuff into their conversations that you can see but it's always kept as subtext and the movie never like beats you over the head with like oh Lipsky feels this way or oh Foster Wallace feels this way instead it's just they both feel this way and then there's all these sort of vignettes where you can see the stuff playing out like when they're with Betsy and Jules. I can't remember what the other girl's name was. Julie. I was closer. You were. <laughs> um, but stuff like that when uh, David Foster Wallace calls uh, Lipsky's girlfriend or woman friend that he's living with that you can just see the stuff that's informing their characters play out and they both get upset about it. But I think it's really interesting. Well, moving away from the like thematic elements, I do want to talk a little bit about the technical elements because this movie is by no means bad looking or poorly filmed. And I don't even think that I would take away points for this, but I do just want to point out that this movie is shot in the exact same way as every other serious, highbrow biopic that I have ever seen has been shot. You know, I just said, you know, gosh dang it. I was I was making a conscious effort to stop saying it for the rest of the program. Dang it. Uh so you are aware, I am sure, <laughs> that um, mm -hmm. their color palettes are pretty muted. The lighting is also fairly muted. 
there is a never-ending gentle sway to the camera. It's not shaky cam, but the camera is always moving. I think that the idea is to simulate the latent bobble that the human head has. Uh, if you watch someone talk or even just sit still, the human head is not still. It's not static. So I think it's supposed to bring the audience more into the movie and it's fine, but it's just, I would really like to see one of these kinds of movies filmed in a different way. But I don't know. What what did you think? I, I strongly disagree. Something that I really loved when I first saw this movie and still love now was the very, I'm going to use the word naturalistic, so I sound smarter than you, but mm. it's exactly what you're talking about, that the camera is very sway-y. And usually it's used, at least in my understanding, that it's to add a level of not realism, but it feels very woozy. I don't know what the right word is. Terrence Malick does it a lot, and his movies are kind of trippy. So, But I think the stuff, a lot of the stuff that you mentioned, like the muted lighting and the muted color palette, just serves to even further highlight the banality of the experience to Lipsky that, and it nails driving in the Midwest in the winter and like just what the Midwest looks like all through the stupid winter because it's overcast every single day here. And so I don't think I've ever seen another movie so perfectly nailed, like, wow, you step out and everything is gray and you want to die because it's winter for the next four months. <laughs> so I think the cinematography does a really good job of keeping the conversation scenes interesting, that they're never filmed in the same sort of way. They usually choose a different angle each time there's a new sort of scene where they're talking or they just right put the camera at a distance and have both of them in the shot and then just let the conversation play out and then yeah the muted color palette and the muted sort of lighting just serves to in my eyes at least further highlight the realism and mundane mundanity mundanity the mundane nature of um the stuff that's happening. So I, yeah, I don't agree at all. I think the cinematography adds a lot, at least in my eyes. Uh, yeah, I, that makes sense. I, I guess you are more easily impressed than I am by, uh, basic camera work and stuff like that. Um, I'm joking, of course, that that's, I, I understand what you're saying. It's just, I guess it just didn't really add that much for me because, I yeah I've just seen it all I've seen it all before and there is again I'm not I'm probably not even going to take points off this because there is a certain level of if it ain't broke don't don't fix it and if that is the what general approach of biopics is to be very naturalistic I guess I can't really fault the movie for following in that trend or doing what it feels like it has to in order to enhance those themes of of banality. But yeah, it's still 
It's it's it definitely didn't add anything for me. Hmm. Well, what did you think of? And I didn't think it was like incredible. It's probably not something that I'm going to go back and listen to. But the music is, and I just find this interesting. I don't know if you watched the credits, but Danny Elfman did the score. And I don't feel like this is a remotely Danny Elfman-esque <laughs> soundtrack at all. It's much more inspired by, at least from my understanding, ambient and kind of electronic synth sort of music, which from my understanding was uh, David Foster Wallace's favorite type of music. And they play his favorite song at the end when they show him dancing. Um, I cannot render any kind of comment on the music because I cannot summon a single note to my mind thinking about it. Uh, which, I think that when we evaluate movie soundtracks, and I'm definitely guilty of this, sometimes we can fall into the trap of treating it as a separate product from the movie in which it is set. Uh, but I think that that's probably the wrong way to evaluate it. Because it is supposed to be a part of the movie. It's not just a bunch of songs that somebody chose to play under quieter moments when there's less happening. It is supposed to appreciably enhance your experience of the movie. So, when I joke about listening or not listening to movie soundtracks casually, I think that whether or not you would listen to a movie soundtrack just when you're in the car is a poor indicator of its quality as a piece of film score. As an individual piece of musical score, maybe, but these aren't individual pieces of music of musical score. They are active parts of a whole. They're not supposed to be taken separately. I don't I don't think. And if this movie's music is just supposed to be ambient sort of white noise that focuses you more on the dialogue and the on-screen action, then I would call that a successful quality movie score because it did appreciably enhance my experience of the movie. Nice. I can't really think of anything else to say on the technical sort of side of things. Yeah. Can you? Uh, no. I will say, in terms of performances, I thought that Jason Siegel did a fantastic job as DFW. I like Jesse Eisenberg generally. I feel like he, sort of like Keanu Reeves, has. there's a certain subset of snarky, fast-talking, yet socially awkward characters that he's kind of designed to play so like Zuckerberg in the social network or uh the one I can't even remember his name the guy from now you see me I don't know uh but I think that it worked well for this character here so no complaints there um I am curious because we've talked a lot about David Foster Wallace in this movie but I'm curious to know what you think as a David Foster Wallace fan, how you feel this movie represented him, and also, what do you think of Infinite Jest? Um, I love Infinite Jest. I read it last year. I think it's incredible. I continue to 
kind of come back to portions of it and just think they are really good. As someone who has read David Foster Wallace, I would say I would classify him as a genius, at least in terms of literary form. I think it's kind of fascinating, this movie's depiction of Foster Wallace. And I'm not like an expert or anything. I've read, you know, like four of his books and watched some interviews with him. I didn't know him or anything like that. But I think it's fascinating how much this movie is kind of constructed around. Uh, we're all artificial in some sense, right? We're all not 100% honest with everyone all the time. And there's just stuff in this movie where it willingly buys into parts of the artifice that David Foster Wallace constructed for himself, I guess. For instance, at the end, when he said he was going dancing at a church, um, he would typically say that when he was going to a drug and alcohol addiction meeting. And he would usually then also, like, if he was introducing someone as, oh, I know them from church, that meant they were in the group with him. And I think, you know, there's... I think still some speculations. I haven't looked into this because I don't know how much it necessarily matters because I think the point that David raises at the end when he's like, it, you know, you want to put my life into a nice, easy, cool movie sort of structure of he was addicted to drugs and then he broke down and wrote this genius book about addiction. And he's like, that's not, that's kind of denying the human elements of what was really happening to me. But I think there is still some speculation that he was addicted to drugs, which the movie kind of seems to imply is not. So I think those are interesting. But I think, it, I mean, I felt, I watched this right after I read Infinite Jest, and I felt like it revealed so much of deeper layers in the book that became so evident through the movie of, right, what, he was trying to communicate and trying to get people to understand. So I really love it. This movie made me cry at the end when he gives the whole speech about the person in the burning building jumping and what that sort of means. I think it's really heartbreaking. And I think it's something that I also struggle with that. It's like, I know what my issue is, but do I know how to fix it? And it can be very frustrating to be trapped just in a state of perpetual greater understanding of the issue, but no closer to figuring out a solution to it. So the movie is really kind of um, really hits home with me in that sort of sense. I mean, yeah, that is what's tragic about that is what's tragic about the movie and about, you know, I just said, you know, gosh, Dang it. <laughs> Every time, you Nathan, said it twice, next actually. time I want you to look, I, I want you to, well, I said it a lot of times before that. Um, the next time I want you to like hook up uh, one of those little shock things and shock me every time I say that, that pair of words in close proximity to each other. Uh, but yeah, that is what's tragic about this movie in light of what happened to him, because obviously it was made after he committed suicide and the, the core problem of suicide obviously is feeling trapped is feeling like there's, there is no obvious way out. So you just have to break out. 
Do you have any other final thoughts before we get to ratings? Um, nope. I don't really think I have any. I've most I've said most of what I sort of want to say. I do think there's points in this movie that are kind of funny. I think the movie is funny in the same way a David Foster Wallace book is funny, that there's just occasionally a joke that it... <laughs> The movie will completely skip by, but if you're watching like this time around, I felt like there was more times that I found myself laughing at a joke or a bit that David did. Foster Wallace, that is. So I do think this movie is kind of fun. But Well, two things. Uh, the joke where they're at the like gas station or something and David Lipsky says I'll pay for this because it's all coming out of my expense account and DFW <laughs> runs back to get more stuff that was pretty funny also this has nothing to do with anything it's it it is only related to the movie in the sense that it is in the movie but I personally laughed because on David Lipsky's last morning in David Foster Wallace's house before the movie ends the dog comes in and jumps onto his bed, and I noticed after the dog got off that it was clearly eating whatever they had put on the pillow to get to, <laughs> the filmmakers had put on the pillow to get him to jump up there and wake up uh, David Lipsky. You know, with I just said, you know, <laughs> it's inescapable um, within the movie, and I thought that was funny. That is funny. That is funny. All right, well, let's get to ratings. Elliot, uh, you can go first. Uh, well, I liked this movie a lot. Um, it's not my favorite that I've seen this year. It's not my favorite anything, but uh, I thought that both characters were really well done, really fleshed out. I thought that the portrait of David Foster Wallace that it painted was very sympathetic and very realistic. And just, yeah, I would say that the way I would just if I had to describe this movie in one word, I would probably use the word moving. That it was just a very moving film in a lot of different ways. And performances were all on point. The cinematography was nothing special, no matter what Nathan would have you think. And although I liked them both as individual characters, I really still don't think that they ever felt like they were friends or like they had a relationship that was much deeper than that, which was disappointing, but hardly. Uh, killed the experience for me. So I'm going to give it a strong B plus. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Well, I really love this movie. I really enjoyed it when I saw it last year. And just like Infinite Jest, it keeps kind of growing on me and coming back into my mind. Rewatching it for this podcast, I still thought it was amazing. I think it's a very interesting way to do sort of a biopic on a very interesting sort of figure in the figure of David Foster Wallace. The performances are great. The cinematography, I think, adds a lot, no matter what Elliot would have you think. <laughs> <laughs> and I just find it, like you said, I find it a very moving portrait of a very interesting person, and it's a very raw, authentic portrayal of both of these two people and it, you know, it doesn't hold any punches. They both come out looking kind of bad in some ways, but very sympathetic in other ways. And I think that's really impressive. I'm going to give it a 9.1 out of 10. 
Good lord. <laughs> I t- it was in my top five from last year. I really like this movie. I don't think it was. I don't think that you actually had this in your top five in that episode. Are you kidding me? How? All right. I'll look. I'll go back and look. But I could have sworn it was in my top five. Okay. Any- well, let's do that later. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, let's get into recommendations. Elliot, you can go first. You had a great recommendation that I was kind of kicking myself that I didn't think of. So you can share it now. Uh, my recommendation is a movie. I think it's from 2017. Uh, I'm going to look it up. Hold on. 2018. Dang, I was off by one year. Uh, it's Can You Ever Forgive Me? It's 2018 drama comedy. It's about a celebrity biographer named Lee Israel. It's based on a true story. It's obviously a biopic. Well, it's not a biopic in the sense that it's about an entire person's life, but it's about it's based on a true story. It's based on a real person about this woman who was a failing author. She wrote biographies, yes, and it's been a while since I've seen it, but she what she did is she copied letters. She copied letters written by famous authors. And then used their style. She kind of like. She memorized their style. To forge letters from them. To sell them and make money. I think that's the gist. Yeah. Uh, yes. Hatch is a scheme. But to forge letters by famous writers. And sell them to bookstores and collectors. And the reason I'm choosing this movie. To recommend. Is not just because it's about a writer. But also because it's about frustration that this person has with her life and she's obviously in a different she's her situation is more analogous to David Lipsky than David Foster Wallace in that she wants something that she doesn't have there are multiple times where she complains about Tom Clancy being a bestseller uh so but she also is a very tortured, lonely person who doesn't really know how to interact with people. And she befriends this one guy um, whose name I can't remember over the course of the movie and their friendship. And it actually is a friendship in this one uh, Mm -hmm. has a very tragic downfall, I thought. And she herself, just like this movie and like with all movies that deal with depressed, lonely people, it just did, well, not all of them. All of the ones that do it well did it well because it portrayed her realistically, but also sympathetically. Because she does some bad things and she makes some bad choices, but the movie always, but the movie never really feels like it's dragging her. It's more, it feels like it's showing a realistic example of how these feelings and these frustrations and this loneliness can drive people to do desperate things and Melissa McCarthy plays the main character and she gives a really good performance I know I'm as surprised as you are but it's it's honestly true uh yeah and I've I've only seen it the one time but I really liked it and I I think about it quite often and I think that it's a really good companion piece maybe not necessarily a one-to-one thematic companion to this movie but it is definitely about a similar person going through similar things. Yeah, 
I agree. I've also actually I've seen it twice because I think I saw it and then I recommended it to you and then I watched it whenever you watched it. So I think it's really good. Melissa McCarthy does turn in a stellar performance in that film. Uh, my recommendation is a movie I watched uh, pretty recently. It's Sideways, which came out in the early 2000s from director Alexander Payne, who I've seen a bunch of his movies this year. I think he's one of the better directors I've discovered recently. Uh, but it follows Paul Giamatti, who is also playing a writer. Wow, it's all writers. Writers across the board. <laughs> all writers, all the time. Um, who Paul Giamatti plays a writer who is depressed following uh, divorce, basically divorce from his wife. And he's going on a weekend bachelor's party sort of trip with his best friend who's played by Thomas Hayden Church, who you might know from Spider-Man 3. <laughs> he, he plays Sandman. But it kind of just follows Paul Giamatti as he's kind of trying to work through some stuff as he's on this trip with his buddy. And I think it's a very authentic portrayal of uh, just like this movie and just like Can You Ever Forgive Me of people who are very lonely, very frustrated, and very much trying to work through something in a way that is not going to work. In his case, he is drinking a lot, which is not good. We are anti-alcoholic here on the podcast. <laughs> in this, in the sense that we're anti-the, like being an alcoholic, not people who are alcoholics. We think they should get help. <laughs> Just put down the shovel, Nathan. Just put down the shovel and get out of the hole and let's move on. <laughs> anyway, it's a really fantastic movie. I think Paul Giamatti does an amazing job. It's incredibly well written. It's very funny. It's also mostly just conversations between people. But I think it's a fantastic film. Great companion piece to this. You could make it a whole evening. Watch... The end of the tour, watch Sideways, watch Can You Ever Forgive Me. You'll be so happy by the end of that afternoon, I bet. And then cry yourself to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wholeheartedly second this recommendation. Uh, Nathan, actually, it, this is uh, one that I recommended to Nathan, so there's nice synergy there. This is the movie that I... I've seen it twice, and I often cite it as the most realistic on-screen depiction of what depression looks like and feels like and sounds like. Something very, just very quiet and very, very cyclical. And I think that is definitely a tragically accurate depiction of the kinds of self-destructive spirals and cycles that people get locked into that keep them in these kinds of really dark, lonely, quiet places. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a real fun watch, uh, but it does have a happy ending. And it's a funny movie too. I think it's kind of, there are some, pretty, there are some, there are some knee slappers in there, but uh, I think that all this talk of depression and loneliness has reminded me of that age old maxim I'm not Maxim. I think it's more of an aphorism that life is hard and full of disappointments. I guess. But just like this movie, uh, you'll always have friends 
who are out there, who've got your back, who will hang out with you, watch a movie with you. Uh, we're always your friends here at the Magellans at the movies. I mean, um, yeah, unless you don't, in which case you don't. Most people do. Most people. And if you don't have one, get one. If you don't have one, get one. Yeah. But thank you for listening to this episode. If you listen to it, yeah, we'll be back next week with another new episode. It's going to be super fun and exciting. Elliot's excited for it. He doesn't know what it is yet. But yeah, thank you for listening. See you next week.